We start with the fight over the future of the Surrey Police Service, the new local Surrey Police Force set to replace the RCMP. The city has already spent millions of dollars on this transition. There's a new mayor and a new city council set to take charge in Surrey. Let's go back to election night now. Incoming Mayor Brenda Locke. And here's what she said in her victory speech. But the first things are first. How about, first of all, we need to keep the Surrey RCMP right here in Surrey. Oh, yes, the incoming mayor on election night. Despite her promise, though, the Surrey Police Board pressing ahead with the move to a local police force. They're hiring more police officers. The chair of the police board said yesterday the mayor's position on this does not align with the board's mandate. Let's discuss it with my guest, Melissa Granham, executive director of the Surrey Police Board. Hi, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, so I think the mayor has been quite clear here in her promise to the people of Surrey that she wants to keep the RCMP. She was elected with a majority on, on the council with her slate running for council. Why is the Surrey Police Board... Uh, moving ahead with the transition to a local police service anyway? Well, I think it's important to first note that the board is provincially appointed and is independent of government, and it's working within the provincial mandate that was given to it, and that's to govern the establishment of the Surrey Police Service. So um, the board will respect the decision given to it by its appointing body, which is the province, but at this point we've not been given any other direction. Um, and it's the independence of the board um, that keeps stability for the police uh, through through what's going on. What about the direction from the new incoming mayor and council, though? I mean, they've been pretty clear that they want to put the brakes on this. Right. So the the incoming mayor and council need to submit a report to the province, at which point the province will evaluate that report. Um, yeah. But what's really important to note is that as Chief Lipinski mentioned earlier in the week, we've been at this for over two and a half years, and, and SPS is a bona fide police agency with collective agreements and other agreements by law that we're obligated to obey. So, for example, we have multi-party agreements in place uh, that, with respect to the deployment of our police officers into Surrey, and the, the, those agreements take us to May of next year, as they currently stand. So SPS has been hiring preparing police officers to do that, and as you can imagine, it does take some time to recruit and prepare police officers to um, to be deployed to the front line. And we are still deploying police officers right. in November, and that's with the support of both the provincial and federal governments. And that's because Surrey simply needs the resources. They need the police officers in Surrey. Okay, so you're going to continue hiring more police officers, even though you've got a mayor and majority on council saying they want they want to stop this? What, like, why... Why would you continue to hire more police officers if this could all be turned back the other direction? Well, at this point, hiring more police officers perhaps is a misnomer. So what's happened now is because this conversation has been happening and we haven't had direction, we do have employment offers that have been accepted by police officers. Notice have been given to their current employers, and these people are essentially coming to SPS as it stands currently. And so because it's so large and so complex, we just can't stop it on a dime. Um, so we do have to um, stay within our legal obligations and that, you know, we were moving forward. Um, and until, like I said, the province makes its decision and, and I would imagine the province recognizing the complexities, just simply the ones I've been talking about here, um, that they do want to make an efficient decision because public safety is too right. important. And, and uh, we do, like I said, we have legal obligations we have to follow. Right. Let me play a clip here for you from... Uh... Paul Danes, who was on the show yesterday, he's with a group called Keep the RCMP in Surrey, and uh, it, quite clear where he stands on this. He he thinks the brake should be put on this transition to a local police force. 
keep the RCMP in Surrey instead. And he and his supporters are, are not happy that the police board appears to be moving forward here to a local police force anyway, despite the commitments from the incoming mayor. So here's what he had to say to me yesterday. He mentions the Surrey Police Board specifically here. Then I'll get your thoughts. It's Paul Danes on yesterday's show. Norm Lipinski and the Surrey Police Board were issuing demands for meetings with Mayor uh, Locke, uh, Mayor-elect Locke, um, insisting that uh, they wanted to present the case to her as to why she could not proceed on the uh, uh, keep the RCMP in Surrey and terminate in the SPS. In all my years of following government, I've never heard a bureaucrat or head of a public agency so blatantly try to undermine and um, stop um, and, uh, uh, you know, a mandate that a, a, a politician has just been elected on. Absolutely disgraceful. Okay, some pretty strong language he's using there. Melissa, what do, what do you say to him? Well, I, I think, like I said, it's really important to understand that we have a mandate. The provincial government gives us our mandate, and we are not doing anything that is uh, beyond that. Um, we would like to meet with Mayor and Council because I think it's really important for Mayor and Council to understand the investment, uh, both the human and the capital investment into this project, the true benefits that Surrey Police Service would bring to the city of Surrey, the caliber of police officer that we're recruiting from uh, from Surrey, from the province and right across Canada. And and I think it's it would be really important that I, I believe that once we have that meeting with Mayor and Council and, and we can show them the progress and we can show them the benefits that perhaps that might change. Okay, so you think you can change your mind then and get her to break her promise to the people of Surrey? Uh, I, I would suggest that it would be presenting the facts from our side and to determine what is best uh-huh. for the city of Surrey. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from Paul Danes here, Keep the RCMP in Surrey. He argues that it's not too late to turn this train around. Norm Lipinski, the, the new Surrey police chief, had said earlier in the week, as you mentioned, he said, look, we've already spent a ton of money on, on this. It's, it's too late to go back now. The supporters of the RCMP don't see it that way. Here's Paul Danes on yesterday's show, then I'll get your thoughts. The SPS transition is much closer to its beginning than it is to Mm. end. They haven't, by their own admission, got a snowball's chance in hell of becoming the police of jurisdiction in Surrey until at least the year 2026. Is that correct, what he said there, that the transition is way behind schedule there? No, that's not correct, um, Mike. The work towards POJ, the board is targeting middle of next year. Um, in order to do that, we have to have all of our policies in place. We have to have our IT infrastructure in place, and we're already $100 million into that project. Um, the board has approved virtually nearly all policies um, in order for the SPS to meet all BC provincial policing standards. The province will then make an objective assessment of whether or not we're ready for police of jurisdiction status. And like I said, we're working on that now. We have been working on it for months and months, and and our target is June of next year. Melissa Granham, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. You're welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the handgun freeze in Canada now that was promised by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And he announced last week that the handgun freeze is kicking in. Let's have a listen to what he said here. Here is the Prime Minister. Have a listen. In May, our government introduced measures to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. Today, our national freeze on handguns 
is coming into force. From today forward, it is no longer legal to buy, sell, or transfer a handgun in Canada. Okay, that is uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, on the handgun freeze in Canada. We've been following this one on the show, including whether it will make a difference in handgun crime and gun crime generally in our country. One of the biggest pushbacks that we're hearing are from sports shooters, people who go to federally licensed gun ranges and target shoot. Uh, for fun, for recreation. Some people get really into it and into competitive shooting and end up being world-ranked. There is an Olympic sport. Not only the Olympics, though, but there are world championships. There are regional championships that people get into. Now, the government has said that there could be a a handgun exemption for Olympic-level athletes. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dr. Najma Ahmed, co-chair Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns. Very pleased to welcome Dr. Ahmed back to the show. Hi, thank you very much for coming on. It's my pleasure to be here, Mike. Okay, I I remember uh, talking to you previously, and we talked a little bit about how you got into this, the movement for stricter gun control in our country. And can you just remind the listeners of your experience, like if we go back to the, the 2018 shooting on, on the Danforth in Toronto, I, I believe, were you, were you were working in the emergency room that day, I think, right? Yes, <clears throat> I'm a trauma surgeon and I was on call that night, that terrible night when there was a mass shooting on the Danforth uh, warm summer evening in July in 2018. And, and I think um, in that moment, the country realize that we are not immune from mass shootings and gun violence in our in our country and for some time you know Mike those of us who work in this area trauma surgeons emergency physicians pediatricians psychiatrists have been watching the uptick in gun violence in our communities and after that we formed uh, sort of started talking about what we could do uh, to prevent these things from happening because from a public health perspective that's always the best thing is to prevent these tragedies in the first place uh, so we organized and uh, formed a group called Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns, and we advocate for re- removing and reducing the proliferation of the most lethal types of guns in our communities and homes and society, as well as investments in um, communities to address social determinants of health, uh, efforts to reduce the illegal importation of firearms across the, uh, across the Canada-U.S. border, and many other things, because it's not one thing. It's going to be everything that will help us address this issue. What, what do you say to the argument that the gun crime that we do see in Canada is largely committed through the use of illegal weapons? Like there are often guns that are smuggled across the border from the United States. It's typically not legal uh, guns, gun owners in Canada who legally own their, their guns committing these crimes. These are criminals who are getting the guns through illegal sources. So how does cracking down on legal gun owners stop that? Well, they can be illegally sourced, but I'll remind uh, the listeners that the mass shooting on the, on the Danforth was, was uh, committed by a handgun that was stolen from a gun shop in Saskatchewan. The majority of domestic homicides are committed by guns that are legally owned. Uh, every week uh, in Canada, uh, two women are killed and 25% of them are killed by guns, and these are 
generally, not every single one of them, but almost always legally owned. 75% of gun deaths in Canada are suicides, and these are almost exclusively legally owned firearms. So uh, it's true that we have to address the illegal importation of guns across the Canada-U.S. border, but that does not mean that we should ignore the proliferation of legal firearms and and the fact that these too can be used in in the commission of crimes uh, to uh, commit heinous acts to kill and injure and harm people. Uh, the RCMP testified to the Public Safety Commission committee rather that um, that um, in February that guns are used in violent crimes. Uh, they were of those guns. They were able to trace about 73% of them to domestic sources, including 42% of handguns. So it does vary season to season, but certainly a proportion, somewhere between 30 and 50% of guns of handguns used in in interpersonal violence uh, are domestically sourced and then then, then maybe stolen or, or sold into illegal markets. Uh, so we have to address all the sources of um, gun crime, injury and death in Canada. And like I said at the beginning, at the top, it's not one thing, it's everything. But ignoring one thing is not going to allow us to get to a fulsome solution. Let me play a clip here for you from a guest we had on this week, Dr. Ahmed. This is Dawn Dealey. She's a competitive sports shooter here in British Columbia. And she's a a world-ranked pistol shooter. I mean, this is her sport. This is her passion. She practices every day. She's getting set to travel to Thailand for the for the world championships in her sport. And her concern is that this handgun freeze is going to freeze her out from the sport that she loves and prevent people from younger people getting involved in competitive recreational shooting. Here's what she had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts, Don Dealey. That cuts us right out of the uh, scene altogether, uh, which is unfortunate mm. because Canada has got some very... My boyfriend, for instance, is on the national um, IPSC team going to Thailand as well. Uh, we have a number of top-ranked international athletes, and we will be left out in the cold. What do you say to people who are involved in these sports who said they're, they're going to be punished yeah. unfairly? It's a perspective that we have to take into account, but I can tell you our perspective, which is that what we see in our trauma bays, emergency departments, operating rooms, is um, devastating, uh, horrible injuries, often in young people. These patients require multiple trips to the operating room, are attached to life support for weeks in the ICU, some of them, and then weeks and months in hospital until they go to rehabilitation. Often they're very young and they never or infrequently go back to school or work. So that's another perspective. These families and communities are devastated by this. And I can understand that there, there is a private interest and that uh, to some extent, perhaps um, the sport will be affected, maybe not at the Olympic level, because we're, we, we understand there could be an exemption for Olympic level shooters. Um, but this is a matter of public interest. And we who have done worked in the area of health advocacy, have heard these kinds of arguments uh, from private interest groups uh, for a long time. We heard it from the tobacco industry when we talked about tobacco labeling and uh, banning smoking in in closed places uh, that is going to devastate the tobacco industry and put millions of people out of work and have huge economic costs. We heard it from the auto industry when, when physicians and other public health experts 
said we should have mandatory seatbelts in all automobiles and uh, mandatory seatbelt laws. So, you know, I can understand there are public and private interests, which would have to be balanced. But the balance must, of course, favor public interest. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from another guest we had on the show this week. This is Doug Bancroft. He's also opposed to the handgun freeze. He's also a a recreational sports shooter. He's involved in these competitive sports. And here he is making the argument about where these these guns come from when they're used to commit crimes in Canada. I think it kind of counter to what you said a little earlier here. But let, let me play what he said, and then I'll get your thoughts. Doug Bancroft earlier this week. They keep on saying that this is a tool for fighting violent firearms crime. The vast majority of police chiefs in Canada have said quite outright, this is a waste of their time and money because the people on the streets primarily involved in gang killings, young males, drug trade, they're getting their guns smuggled primarily from the States. What, what do you say to him? So I think that your call is referring to one form of gun violence, which is interpersonal violence. Uh, and, uh, it is uh, frequently difficult to trace these firearms, but a proportion of them uh, are, are, are domestically sourced. They are uh, in Toronto recently. There was a huge cache of, of guns. The police um, arrested someone with a large number of legal guns that were going to be sold, you know, into illegal markets. So cutting off the source will address part of it. And again, yes, of course, we should. Uh, shut down or as much as we can address illegal importation of guns across the Canada-U.S. border. Like I said, it's not one thing, it's everything. And people like to talk about um, interpersonal violence and gun crime on the streets because that's what's on the radios and and in the news. But then we ignore the number of women who are killed in domestic violence and domestic homicide every year. Those are almost exclusively legally owned guns. We ignore the 70 to 75 percent of people who uh, uh, die by suicide by guns in Canada every year, largely preventable because guns are so lethal when used in suicide and other means of suicide attempt are much less lethal. So, again, I would reiterate the initial point that it's not one thing. It's everything. And to me, this is an argument of distraction that, you know, well, you know, it won't address this particular case or that particular case, but it will certainly address many, many of the cases. And the overwhelming evidence internationally is that uh, reducing access to guns in society saves lives, saves everyone's lives. Thank you for coming on today with your thoughts and perspective on it. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again, Mike, for the invitation. Let's keep talking about this handgun issue. My guest is Wes Winkle. Wes is a competitive sports shooter. He's a president of Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. Hi, Wes. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for coming on. We were talking earlier on the show about whether this handgun freeze would unfairly punish people who are just in this for recreation and weekend going to the gun range to uh, shoot at targets on a weekend. It's a competitive sport, right? It's a big sport. Got a lot of people involved in it, would you say? Absolutely. It's a, it's a very competitive sport. Got a lot of people involved in it, uh, people that have been doing it safely for for decades upon decades. And, uh, yes, it uh, very unfairly punishes them. Yeah. What Now, I know the government has talked about an exemption for Olympic and Paralympic-level athletes, right? But, you know, that doesn't include a lot of other people who are, you know, competitive shooters, right? Not everybody goes to the Olympics. 
Well, absolutely. If you kind of look at shooting a little bit like golf, sir, it kind of is a similar, whereas the Olympics are not necessarily the premier or the most popular competition in our sport. Uh, it's a very narrow field that the, the Olympics uh, kind of appeals to, and uh, the bulk of yeah. the target shooting is not done inside that discipline. Yeah, so where most people are, like I talked to a couple of sports shooters earlier this week who are going to like the world championships in Thailand and stuff. What happens to those people who are into it for recreation? Are they going to be cut off from their sport? Absolutely. They're going to be shut out. Uh, the, the freeze uh, uh, definitely penalizes them. that They're no longer going to be able to go through once, once their firearm uh, wears out and needs to be re- replaced. They will not be able to do so. Um, Short term, of course, uh, like uh, typically we'd see with these laws, trying to minimize the immediate pain. Short term, they are still able to use those firearms in that sport, which, uh, you know, if you think about the public safety aspect, if the stuff that uh, some of the advocates for this was true, then you think that there would be an immediate urge to get these out of the hands, but it's not the case. It's a matter of trying to shut Mm -hmm. down a lifestyle and trying to shut down a, a segment of our community. Wes Winkle is my guest. Let's squeeze a phone call in here. Mike on the line in Vernon. Hi, Mike. What do you think of this? Hey, good morning, Mike. So what was really interesting was your guest, your previous guest, talked in, in vagaries, if that's a word. Um, everything was percentages, ratios, so on and so forth. She never quotes the numbers. I've heard her before because the numbers don't yeah. support her narrative, and that's the problem, right? And, you know, the other thing, too, that I look at, is humans are extremely efficient at killing humans. If you can't use a gun, they'll use a knife. If they can't use a knife, they'll find a baseball bat. If they can't do that, they'll find something else. You know what? The same with suicide. If someone wants to commit suicide, they'll find a way to do it. They don't necessarily have to use a gun. Okay. Okay, thank you, thank you Mike. Wes, there's an argument that the guns in our society that are causing, be uh, related to crime and murders are guns that are, largely smuggled across the border. They're illegal guns in, in, in many cases. Not all of them, though. Like, what do you say to that argument that, yeah, like guys like yourself could be, you know, cut off from your sport that you love, but the greater good is to cut down on gun violence? Your thoughts? Well, again, the, the term legally sourced is, is, uh, is something that is a little bit played with as well. Um, you know, the, the, the terms that the doctor was talking about are firearms that were imported illegally and then at some point in time stolen uh, through the system. And again, uh, those people are victims of a crime as well. And, uh, you know, so those still are not sourced legally. And if you eliminate those, I mean, we're talking about addressing a problem that's less than 2% of the firearms recovered in in crimes in Canada. Uh, It's it's a very misdirected thing, and it's intentionally misdirected. It's not about about public safety at all. It's about appealing to the polls of people that are ignorant to our sport and ignorant to what the current laws are. If you ask most people if they support a ban on handguns, they have no acknowledgement as to what the rules are now and the fact that it takes nine months of, of training and licensing to get a license now in our sport. Uh, we've jumped through many, many hoops. We've followed all the, the guidelines that the federal government's put forward for us. We've got our license. We've been yeah. safely trained. We've been vetted. And now, all of a sudden, we're the ones that they're attacking. And why? Because we're an easy target. And it's a great distractionary thing from, from certain political pressures. They could say, oh, look what we're doing for crime. And people that don't understand the rules that we currently have will then therefore put political support behind it. Wes, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Let's talk about a town on the edge here right now, Smithers, B.C. Got some frayed nerves in town here today after someone set fire 
to police and government vehicles in the town yesterday. Eight vehicles were torched. Who did it and why? The investigation is underway. I've got the mayor standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Kamal Karmali. A hotel parking lot in Smithers, B.C. turned into an inferno as flames ripped through multiple vehicles early Wednesday morning. Police calling it a targeted attack on emergency service vehicles. Eight vehicles damaged or completely destroyed, including four RCMP cruisers and one B.C. ambulance. A B.C. hydro truck was also damaged. No one injured, but the sleepy town shaken. People are going to be uh, feeling all kinds of emotion from disbelief to concern to worry. Okay, you heard the uh, the voice of the mayor there, Mayor Gladys Attrell, mayor of Smithers, and the mayor joins me now. Mayor Attrell, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Okay, I'm sorry this has happened to the town of Smithers. When did you first hear about this, and what went through your mind when you heard about it? Well, I heard about it yesterday morning. I was actually away. I was in Prince George yesterday for some other meeting, so I got a call in the morning about it. Um, you know, a whole bunch of things went through my mind. First, concern that, you know, there were vehicles on fire, worry about what the consequences of just a fire might be. And then, you know, more, more concern as I realized from conversations with the police that it did appear targeted. And then later, you know, their um, release coming out with suspected arson, the description of the event as they saw it. So, of course, it's very disturbing. It's very troubling. Uh, you know, you mentioned we're a small community. This isn't common uh, there's not something common that happens here. So it's startling and disturbing. And of course, I am glad no one was hurt. Right. And people are already wondering why would someone do this? Is it related to the nearby coastal gas link pipeline? Don't, you know, we had earlier, we had those 20 people wearing masks who attacked a pipeline work site near Houston, BC. Well, I believe that's just down the highway from Smithers, correct? Yeah, Houston is about 40 minutes down the road, and then the pipeline right. site is south of Houston in a rural area. Yeah, right. So in the same area where that earlier attack happened, I mean, is this is this what people are saying in town right now, Mayor, that this is this looks like the work of, like, eco-terrorists eco opposed to the pipeline? Is that the suspicion? Well, you know, there are, there are all kinds of stories and comments being circulated but at this point, you know, it isn't known who did it. The RCMP are yeah. using the language of targeted for the emergency vehicles. So that's clear. But at the same time, I don't think we're better off by, um, you know, increasing speculation or trying to get people, you know, folks getting other people more ramped up. There's been lots of stuff yeah. going on in the community over the last while and people are tense. But I think it behooves us to wait, uh, figure out, you know, with the RCMP investigation what actually happened and hopefully they're able to determine who was behind it. But of course, people are speculating. People are human and they uh, can't help but go through the what ifs and who done it part. But at this point, we don't really know. Yeah. Speaking to Gladys Attrell, the mayor of Smithers, the attack on police vehicles, government vehicles there yesterday, eight vehicles burned. Yeah, I can understand how I take your point there. You don't want to sort of rush to some judgment before we we know precisely what happened. But I mean... When you consider that the pipeline activity is nearby and it's so controversial, like how how would you describe kind of the the feeling in the town about the pipeline? Is like is the town divided on this project or mostly supportive? How would you how would you characterize it? 
Yeah, I don't think that there's one opinion through town. You know, it's a big project, and for some, it provides opportunity. And, of course, we are, um, you know, we sit on Den territory of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, and the pipeline crossing under the Maurice is also on Den territory. So there's definitely a divide in the community, folks that weren't supportive of the pipeline and are very supportive of the Get'em Den and Wet'suwet'en neighbours and others that are happy for the opportunity. So this this isn't clear-cut, and I'm not sure that everyone holds the same opinion. I think, though, the event that we saw in the hotel parking lot yesterday that's extraordinary and that's not acceptable. You know, the destroying of private property and it could have been so much worse. There's buildings adjacent, you know, people sometimes are sleeping in their vehicles, like people can leave their pets in vehicles. It could have been so much worse. So that is extraordinary and unacceptable. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. And when did this happen? Was this done like done overnight under the cover of darkness? My understanding is that it was reported about 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think people heard the sounds. And then, of course, it's right beside the hotel. So people were able to, you know, hear something, look out their window, and were able to call it in right away. My goodness, that is really terrible. And what are the police saying? Like, are they appealing for any videotape evidence? Is, is there any kind of surveillance video of, of this, to your knowledge? They are actually looking for witnesses, anyone who happened to be going by, if they've got dash cam footage, like any um, any video definitely is being requested by the RCMP. The investigators were in the parking lot. Um, they came into town last night and they are continuing the investigation. The whole parking lot still behind police tape. They'll clear it up as soon as they're through the investigation, but they are looking for witnesses. Um, I don't know at this point what amount of evidence they actually have. I'm not sure they would tell me the details of that until they're ready. But they are still doing the investigation and looking for any sort of witness and video evidence that's out there. You mentioned that you don't want to rush to rush to conclusions or make assumptions about why someone would do this. Let me play a clip here for you of uh, Liberal MLA Ellis Ross, who seems to have made up his mind about what this is about. We'll also hear from the Solicitor General Mike Farnworth here in this clip. But here is Ellis Ross, Liberal MLA. We already saw the eco-terrorists do something similar to pipeline workers, what was it, over a year ago, and nothing happened. What took place this morning is absolutely uh, reprehensible and disgraceful. It's criminal activity. Yeah, it's Mike Farnworth there at the end that it's, it's reprehensible, it's disgraceful. Mayor Attrell, I'm, I'm sure you agree with him. But you got the Liberal MLA saying, well, hang on, like, we already had this earlier eco-terrorist attack. And I take your point. We, people don't, you don't want to rush to a conclusion while there's an investigation going on. But, you know, one of the things that occurs to me is what would be the point of doing this? Like, even if this was somehow related to a, a pipeline development that has divided people in the community, like burning a, burning a police vehicle, burning an ambulance, how, how is that going to change anyone's mind? I don't think it will. Maybe it just drives people further apart. Like, do you have any concerns that this could you know, cause repercussions in the community. Of course I do. And that's, you know, so um, people, of course, are free to come to their own conclusions. But this is the community I live in. And I'm really concerned that this community have an opportunity to hear clearly what happened when it's known and that we aren't further um, divided, that we aren't further ramped up into being suspicious of one another. That doesn't help things. So we already have tension in the community, and it's, it's just not in anyone's best interest to make that worse. So, of course, anyone can come to any conclusion that they want. They can hold the suspicion that they do. 
I'm urging people to sort of stay calm. This was horrible. It was reprehensible. It could have been much worse, but we're not going to make it better by hurling accusations at people before we know what happened. So I'm just urging people, be patient, stay calm, be vigilant, look, look for things. If you know something, share that with the police. But I'm concerned that the people in this community are able to be calm and do our very best to feel safe here. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. You know, this is where I'm at. And um, it's going to be hard enough for people here. So we don't need to ramp it up. Mayor Atrell, thank you very much for coming on today. Very grateful to you for that. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Okay, we keep talking about the targeted attack on police and government vehicles yesterday in the town of Smithers. So eight vehicles were set on fire yesterday in the parking lot of a local hotel. RCMP cruisers, an ambulance was burned, a BC Hydro truck was burned. Police are investigating who did it and why. Is it related to the nearby coastal gas link pipeline? Is this the work of eco-terrorists? Some people think it is. Let's check in with Stuart Muir now, Executive Director of Resource Works. to support the resource economy in BC, including the coastal gas link pipeline. Stuart, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this? I mean, this has all the hallmarks to me. I mean, no one, no one's taking responsibility for this. There's no arrest. There's an investigation going on, but... Man, oh man, when you think about the attack on that coastal gasoline pipeline work site just down the highway a few months ago, what's going through your mind in this one? Yeah, you know, I certainly agree with Mayor Smithers that we shouldn't jump to conclusions based on no evidence. But I would also say let's look at the fact pattern and the evidence we do have. So looking back, uh, we, we saw with that incident you mentioned in February, you've got these First Nations workers on the job in the middle of the night, there's 20 people come out of nowhere, attack them with axes. They burn down literally millions of dollars worth of equipment, destroy buildings, and then they vanish into the night. Uh, it, it, was, it was interesting at that time because immediately afterward, no one, quote-unquote, claimed responsibility. It just sort of went away. There's been no uh, charges laid. Uh, what we do have, yeah. though, is from an earlier incident, there was a, a, a blockade. There was one person who was charged, and this is interesting. I, I, I want to provide a few facts here that I think might, might be pertinent to what's going on. You've got uh, the leader of the, the, the fall of 2021 um, blockade who's now going to be standing trial on criminal contempt charges from that incident who continues to be quite involved in, in stirring the pot on this issue of blocking getting a cleaner fuel to Asia where it's desperately needed to fight climate change. And you you are seeing the, the same group that orchestrated that action involved just in recent days on Facebook. If you go to West Strong, uh, a few days ago, there was a meeting where Ms. Wickham was involved, where they were issuing calls to action to stop the CGL project. And at one point, about 40 minutes yeah. into this meeting, uh, pushing people to take action in any way they can to stop the drilling. We've also seen recently the Dogwood Group, which was mentioned recently in the Elizabeth Cole report on the, the BC NDP leadership campaign, where it was claimed that uh, you know their candidate was basically pushed into place to take over the you know premier's job in BC. I mean, it was quite an audacious thing. But the Dogwood Group, uh, one of its members, Kai Nagata, was involved in uh, some of the orchestrations in the uh, CGL fight a while ago was recently on one of these calls, 
They're not saying go and burn things down. What they are saying is go and do things to stop CGL. You know, no one knows who's listening to this. And then suddenly we've got an arson attack. Uh, we have the MLA for that area of northwest BC. Uh, Nathan Cohen, he's been on Twitter saying it was arson. You know, let's let's be clear on what did happen. You know, this was not yeah. some lightning strike. It was a, a human action that occurred. We don't know how or why or who, but we know what happened. Well, well yeah, I mean, I think it's clear a, a, a terrible crime has been committed. The police are saying it was a targeted attack. It is arson. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. I guess the question is, you know, who did it? Is it related to this pipeline? Now, you know, as for the groups that you, you mentioned there, Stuart, I mean, you know, a blockade is one thing. Trying to block a an access road is one thing. But, man, like attacking people, violence, property destruction, setting fires to ambulances and police vehicles, that is something else. And I, I'm just wondering, like, yeah. when you when you hear these type of things, like what goes through your mind? Like, I, I'm still trying to figure out what would be the what's the point of this type of violence and destruction? Like, how is that going to change anyone's mind uh, other than is yeah. it a campaign, a campaign of fear and intimidation? Like, what's what's the point? We've got a couple of minutes here. Go ahead. Yeah, I think the uh, thesis here, if there is one, is to take any action you can to stop the progress of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. And if they're broadcasting from these organizations into either of social media, they don't know who's listening to it. They don't know who's going to take a call to action, which maybe they would say, oh, no, we were just saying write a letter to the editor or something. You know, they don't know who is going to uh, go and do something dramatic and, and potentially put lives at risk. There are people sleeping in that hotel and those vehicles right adjacent. You know, people could have been killed. So someone could be suffering because that ambulance that burned down is not able to provide service to a sick person right now. Uh, we don't know, yeah. but it did happen. And there's no, there's no accountability, no responsibility. Uh, I would say if I had a call to action, it would be for those who are up there in social media saying, go and stop that, do whatever you can. If you're an anarchist, anarchist or a warrior, and they're using terms like this, go and be a warrior. Go and be an anarchist. Go and thwart the state. Go and use warrior tactics to stop this pipeline. Well, what are people going to do with that information if they are, you know, well, let's be blunt. You know, if they're, if they're not thinking straight or, or they don't see uh, the humanity of others in, in their space, they might just go and do things like we saw yesterday morning. Okay. Well, we're following it closely. We'll see what happens with this one. There's been no arrests in the earlier attack on that pipeline uh, work camp. And uh, police investigating this one as well. Hopefully, they catch the people who did it. Stuart, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back. Now, we all know inflation is a big problem here right now. Everything is going up in price. Now, here is something that is super expensive for a lot of people dental care especially if you don't have any insurance. Even if you have insurance, it often doesn't cover everything. Let's talk to the Vancouver dentist now who's trying to make things a little bit more affordable, Dr. Ryan Um. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Dr. Um, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for being here. So you're getting a lot of attention for your dental practice in, in downtown Vancouver, and you're charging... Okay, let me get this right. Your fees are 15% less than what is recommended or suggested by the BC Dental Association. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. 
Okay, how does that how does that work? Like, is this like uh, the BC Dental Association has like a suggested retail price for dental services? Is that is that what they do? Yeah, I think uh, what they do is they take a survey of you know the expenses of the day to day operations of the dental offices every year. Uh, they take everybody's opinions into account, and then they publish a fee guide. Uh, it's just a guide. You don't have to charge at that mm. at that price. You can charge above, you can charge below, but it's just a suggestion uh, for the different uh, fees, like what would be appropriate uh, to charge. Okay, so it's just a guide. You don't have to charge what they say, but you've decided to charge less than what the guide says, right? So why why are you doing that? Uh, because, you know, every day I'm coming to work and I have to talk to patients, uh, people uh, who have cavities, you know, they need them fixed. Um, and uh, cost is the number one factor often uh, in terms of whether or not somebody can uh, go ahead with treatment or not. So I thought I'd just uh, make that easier for people a little bit. Right. What are some of the more, like, you know, uh, if people can't afford to get dental care, what are the risks that they face to their their health? Well, the number one risk is that over time, you know, if you keep losing teeth, you're not going to have any teeth left. So obviously we need our teeth to chew and to eat food. Uh, Number two would be chronic infection. So let's say... If you have uh, periodontal disease, gum disease, then you could have uh, inflammation in your in your general system. That's not good for your cardiovascular health, right? Uh, number three would be acute infection. So if you have a big swelling, you've got pus, uh, you have a fever, uh, the, the infection could spread to your airways and your brain and things like that. You know, uh, so those three oh. things are, are what we would want to avoid. Yeah, well, that sounds really nasty. Yeah, you want to definitely want to prevent prevent that. So let me ask you, like, now that you're you're getting a lot of attention for this, so your fees are fifteen percent lower than the BC Dental Association guide, as you explained. Uh, like the people who are coming into your office in response to this, what are they telling you? You know, I'm seeing people that haven't come to a dentist in a long time, and. Uh, you know, this is kind of what triggered them to come. So I'm really glad to see that. Um, so to be able to help people that otherwise would not have been able to go to the dentist or maybe they would have put it off longer. Um, and uh, I think people are also appreciating the transparency and, and just knowing what uh, what my fees are because they can just look it up on the fee guide, the services they need, subtract 15%, yeah. and they know what, what that's what's going to cost. Uh, so uh, I think they they know what they know uh, knowing they like knowing uh, what what it's going to cost before going in. Right, and so are, do you see a lot of people coming in who don't have insurance, or or maybe they're underinsured? Like some of the some of the procedures are not fully covered. Yeah, I work as a dentist for seven years before I started uh, working here in this office as an owner, and uh, I would say definitely I'm seeing a lot more uninsured patients than I was before. Yeah. Yeah. What are what are your colleagues saying to you? Like, are are some of them saying, Ryan, what are you doing here? You're you're charging less than the association guide. Oh, oh, this is this is bad. You're undercutting your competitors. Are you getting any complaints like that? Uh, I've gotten certain comments like that uh, on Reddit, mostly, which is where this Mm. uh, tension kind of started in the beginning. Um, And, uh, you know, 
people that I uh, know in the field, you know, they're they're worried about me. They're worried that uh, I'm going to get flamed. Uh, but uh, you know, so far, so far, it's been okay. Um, I don't think yeah. that the dental industry is that anti-competitive. You know, I don't think that just because I lowered my fees a little bit, everyone's just going to get on my back and uh, you know tell me to stop or anything like that. Well, it's like well, it's like you explained earlier. You're not breaking any rules. You're allowed to charge right. less than what the guide says, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Okay. Speaking of Dr. Ryan Um, Vancouver dentist, how can you afford to do that? Like, if you've got a, an office downtown, I know you've got you've got your overhead. You got to pay your staff. You got to pay your rent, right? Like, how can you afford to 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 do this? Well, I just did some rough back of the napkin type of math, and I looked at the amount of revenue and the amount of expenses and what, what the profit margin is for a typical dental office. And so uh, I looked at that and I thought, you know what, I can probably take 15% off the top and still be able to make a living. Uh, so that's how yeah. I arrived at the number. Now the caveat to that is that I've only been open for a few weeks, so I haven't had to pay any suppliers yet. Uh, maybe there's dentists with uh, decades of experience as an owner managing offices that think that, you know, this is not going to work. And, uh, but uh, I'm not too worried that, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to make a living. I'm pretty confident that I'll be able to. Do you think that the government should expand the medical system to cover more dental procedures? And we actually see this happening in Canada right now. The federal Trudeau government here has brought right. in the Canada Dental Benefit, <clears throat> and it's going to initially cover children under the age of 12 right. with a fam- family income of less than $70,000, right. they would qualify for some coverage. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully it's set to expand later. And there's been a lot of pressure from the NDP in this governing partnership with the Liberals to, to bring in this dental coverage. Do you think that's a good thing to do? And should it be expanded even more? I do think that's a good thing to do. As a principal, I'm a supporter of universal health care. And dental care is obviously part of health care. So I believe that uh, dental care should be included as part of the free health care that we have. Now, I think it's going to take a lot of money. Uh, we do have uh, government-funded dental programs right now, uh, the, for example, the Ministry of Health. Uh, but that actually pays, you know, 40 to 50% of the regular fee guide. So. Yeah. It, it doesn't allow dentists to actually build a practice on that on that program. Uh, what what dentists do is they see their regular patients and they they'll sometimes see like a few Ministry of Health patients and the rest of their revenue will cover the the cost. So it's basically pro bono. Um, so obviously expanding that program to cover everybody is not going to work because all the dentists will go bankrupt. So I think I just think it's going to take a lot of money. Um, you know, I'm not a policy-making expert, so I don't know where that money is going to come from, but yeah. uh, it's going to be a pretty gargantuan task. Hey, Dr. Ram, are you, are you taking new patients down there? I am taking new patients, yes. Okay, where are you located if people want to talk to you? Yeah, we're at the, uh, the Burrard Building. It's uh, 1030 West Georgia Street. Okay, thank you very much for coming on today. Good luck with your venture there. Oh, thank you so much for having me.